Steve Ebling really needs no introduction. Many of you know who he is, and he was not expecting me to get up here to introduce him. I just wanted to be on the stage a little bit longer. Steve, why don't you come on up here? Can we give a little bit of a warm welcome, a little bit of one, to Steve Ebling? Steve lives here in Fishers with his wife, Diana. Is that correct? And you also have four children. That is correct. There's another pastor around here with four children. Um, it's great to have you, Steve. Thanks so much for Thank being you, here. Jason. Really, wonderful. it is always a joy to be with you all, and it's especially a joy to stand again in this pulpit. I count as one of the great blessings of my life calling Jerry, Scott, and Stan my friends. They have been a blessing to me for a long time. I came across a quote from Cicero this past week that great Roman philosopher who lived a century before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he once said that next to the gift of wisdom, the gift of friendship is the greatest gift given to humankind. Well, I think about that line as I think about people like Jerry, Scott, and Stan. And their wisdom has also been very special in my life. And so no wonder they are so dear to me, and I know to you as well. I am just about to complete a full season of retreats with Altar Fly Fishing. We bring faith and fly fishing together by offering retreats around the country for pastors and leaders. This season has reminded me that these times away these, on these retreats is about far more than the fishing Certainly fishing is a part of it, but it's about so much more because I have seen life after life after life encouraged and deepened this year on these times of way. And I'm very delighted that the CPC Men's Ministry will be joining us for an altar retreat this coming May. This retreat will be held in southeast Minnesota, right across the Wisconsin border, I was just there a few weeks ago uh, leading another retreat. It's a beautiful place, and the trout streams are gorgeous. So if you are interested in learning more about this retreat, gentlemen, uh, please take a moment to speak with me after worship. I will also tell you that our retreats for next year are now live on our website, so you can learn more about this retreat, the CPC Men's Retreat on our website at altarflyfishing.org. And by the way, I always like to remind folks, you need not be an angler to come to one of our retreats. Most of the people who join us um, come having no experience fly fishing. And your own Jerry Deck is a great example of that. He joined us on one of our retreats last April in Pennsylvania having no experience in fly fishing. And I'm not sure Jerry would call himself an angler now or he'll ever call himself an angler. But for a couple of days, he was, and he caught trout. And I will tell you, one of the joys of my year was seeing Jerry in waders. Uh, he looked like an angler, at least, for a few days. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a joy now to open your word, and I pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts, that by the power of your spirit, we might learn from your word this day to the end that we are your faithful disciples. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
It's my privilege this morning to continue your series in Luke, this series that you've been in now for some time, seeing Jesus anew, the Gospel of Luke. We're in the first 10 verses of chapter 17 this morning, and as you know by now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's moving south through Israel from Galilee to Jerusalem to all that awaits him there. And I will let you know that in chapter 19, the Palm Sunday story is told. So we're getting very close to what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. As you also know that on his way to Jerusalem, he's had many conversations with his disciples and his adversaries, the Pharisees, this morning in chapter 17, he begins by having conversations with his followers. Knowing his time is short, you can sense the urgency in his words. So hear now the word of God from chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day, and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, Say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Amen. My grandparents lived not far from where I grew up in northwestern Ohio, which meant that as a kid, I experienced a regular practice that sadly I don't think is that common anymore. It was typical for us on most Sunday afternoons to pile in the station wagon and go visit my grandparents in town. Most of those Sunday afternoons were spent in their family room. Usually a ball game was on the TV, a color TV, mind you. And while that ball game was on, we talked. I'd like to tell you that as a little kid, I looked forward to those times with great enthusiasm. But that would be stretching the truth a bit. As a little kid, I always thought that I would have better things to do on a Sunday afternoon than go sit in my grandparents' family room. But now all these decades later, I think back on those afternoons with great 
appreciation and thanksgiving because those afternoons taught me the value of being with older adults, not to mention the value of being with my grandparents. You know how sometimes a taste or a smell will jog a memory and take you back? Well, the mint flavor wintergreen instantly takes me back to my grandparents' family room. For you see that my grandmother always had a jar of candy for us ready when we came. And this particular candy was about that big, about that thick, round and pink, wintergreen flavor. And I learned that I could chomp on these mints because they were fairly soft and be done with them in a matter of seconds. Or I could let them just rest in my mouth for a while, suck over them over a period of time, and slowly but surely over the course of many minutes, they would dissolve. And when I finally finished, my tongue would have turned a bright shade of pink. When I was putting this sermon together, I texted my sister asking what she remembered about those Sunday afternoons, not telling her about what I remembered about the mints. I was just kind of curious if she would remember them too. And she texted me back with a list of things she remembered, things that I hadn't thought of, like how my grandpa always sat in his favorite chair. And how we as kids would would explore their house, looking at their bedrooms and bathrooms, rooms that looked like they were just out of an interior decorator's magazine. And at the bottom of the list, she put the jar of pink mints. (laughs) When it comes to scripture, we can read it in one of two ways. We can chomp on the words and think we have them figured out in a matter of seconds, like we're reading an instruction manual about how to play a card game or put a piece of furniture together. However, reading scripture is not intended to be like reading an instruction manual. Much better to read the scripture like we're letting a pink wintergreen mint dissolve in our mouths We read it slowly, reflectively, letting it become part of us. Reading it won't turn our tongues pink, but it surely will color our lives with the way of Jesus. And that's how I want to approach Luke 17 this morning with you. Let's read it slowly, reflectively, letting it color our lives with the way of Jesus. This passage can easily be separated into four parts, and so let's take a look at these four parts one at a time. I start with verses one and two. Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. On Thursday, I listened to Scott and Stan's podcast on this passage. I so enjoyed hearing their insights about it. They had lots of rich comments to make. In fact, I got to thinking as I listened to them 
that recently I told Jerry how much I appreciate his preaching. Every time I worship here, I am moved by his words. He always makes me think deeply about following Jesus and then prompts me to act on those thoughts. But from now on, when I hear Jerry preach, I'm going to say to him after worship, so did you come up with that brilliant insight on your own or did you get that off the podcast that Scott and Stan put out? Well, in their podcast this week, Scott and Stan reminded me of a key word in verse 1, the Greek word behind occasions for stumbling. It's the word scandalon. And as you can just hear as I say that word, scandalon, it's the root of our word scandal or scandalous. So here Jesus is saying that scandalous things will happen in the community of faith. One of the original meanings of the word scandalon was a bait stick in a trap. Some years ago, we lived in a home which we discovered after moving in had squirrels in the attic. So at night, as we're drifting off to sleep, we'd hear these creatures running around in the attic on the other side of our bedroom ceiling. Not exactly the kind of thing you want to be hearing as you're drifting off to sleep. So we had a guy come. A guy came to trap those squirrels and he put a bait, a scandal on, in the trap. And of course that lured the squirrels into the trap and the next day he would come and remove the traps and take those squirrels way out in the country somewhere and let them loose. Well, that's a good use of the word scandal on. In the church community, scandals aren't as welcome. In time, the word came to mean trap or snare or offense. Bad things will happen in the church, Jesus says. Which is a good reminder to us because I think sometimes we're tempted to think that we can find a church that is just going to be hunky-dory all the time. Uh, not according to Jesus. But there's another point he wants to make. Yes, bad things will happen, even scandalous things, but woe to whom causes others to stumble. It would be better for you, Jesus said, if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were tossed into the sea than to cause one of my little ones to stumble. As he so often does, Jesus uses hyperbole here to make his point. A millstone was a large round stone with a hole in the middle used in the process of milling grain. They often weighed 100 pounds or so, and in the mill they were pulled around in a circle by a donkey as the, main, as the grain was milled. So imagine having a millstone a hundred pound piece of rock with a hole in the middle put around your head like a necklace and then being tossed in the sea. Not a pleasant thought, which was Jesus' way of saying, hey, don't cause my little ones to stumble. You'd be better off dead. And little ones here surely meant young children, but he likely meant 
those young in the faith, or vulnerable in the faith as well. What we say and do in the body of Christ matters. Verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. I had a seminary professor once who remarked on a bumper sticker, a comment that stays with me to this day. The bumper sticker was, smile, Jesus loves you. She allowed that, yes, because Jesus loves us, there's reason to smile. But she went on to wisely point out that sometimes, because Jesus loves us, we will be called upon to do some hard things. Obedience to Jesus may not always be a cheerful endeavor. What we read in verses 3 to 4 is a call to the hard work of forgiveness, a work that isn't always filled with smiles. Now, in Jesus' time, the rabbis said that if a person forgave someone three times, that person was a perfect person. Well, Jesus takes that number three, doubles it, and adds another. But this really isn't about a math calculation. The point Jesus is making here is that in the kingdom of Jesus, we are called to a way of forgiveness that far exceeds what the world understands forgiveness to be. Far exceeds. A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine who was struggling with the behavior of his mother. His mother is a difficult person to be around. So much so that my friend's daughter, who is getting married next year, is questioning whether she wants to invite her grandmother to the wedding because she's afraid she'll ruin it. And my pastor friend totally understands the concern of his daughter. He's wrestling with the hard work of forgiveness. Think about the hard work of forgiveness needed now in the land where Jesus walked. There's not a lot going on there right now that brings a bunch of smiles. Think about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus in that place right now. The hard work of forgiveness. Don't let anybody ever mislead you that following Jesus will be a life of one wonderful blessing after another. Certainly there are blessings to be sure. But as we learn in the Gospels, knowing that chapter 19 
the start of Holy Week is only a couple of chapters away. What we learn in the Gospels is that sometimes following Jesus is hard. Verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Don't miss the change in wording here. First five begins with the apostles. The chapter begins with Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now the apostles, which probably means that as the chapter opened, he's preaching to a large group of his disciples. But after verse 4, the apostles, meaning the 12, literally the sent ones, which they would become known as, they pull him aside with this comment. Increase our faith. They've just heard his words about the hard work of forgiveness, and they don't know if they have that kind of faith to forgive in that way. But it turns out they already have enough faith. Again, speaking in hyperbole, Jesus tells them that if they have faith the size of a mustard seed, now understand, a mustard seed in your palm would not be much bigger than a speck of dust. That's all the faith they need to see God at work. That's faith enough to see a mulberry tree uprooted and put into the sea. Now, in other gospel stories, instead of mulberry tree in this passage, we get mountain, which sounds far more dramatic, that you can tell this mountain to to go into the sea and it will. But likely, a mulberry tree was alongside where Jesus was teaching, and he pointed at it as he spoke. And perhaps those people knew some things about mulberry trees that we might not. So, for example, a mulberry tree has an extensive root system. They go far and wide, very complex. And in fact, in Jesus' day, there was a law among the Jews that said, you are not to plant a mulberry tree within 75 feet of a cistern because they knew if you planted a mulberry tree closer than that to a cistern, the roots would find its way through the walls of that cistern and ruin it. And the roots of a mulberry tree are so vast that they can live hundreds of years. Suddenly uprooting a mulberry bush seems like quite a feat, doesn't it? And of course, that's the point. Amazing feats will happen in Christ's kingdom because God is at work. The blind will see, the lame will walk, the broken will be healed. Greatness of faith isn't required for all of those things to happen. Jesus simply calls us to act on whatever faith we have. That's enough. I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago, a pastor who has served churches in leadership for some 35 years. And I asked him, so when in your life did the word faith become more than just a word to you? 
without even thinking about it, he said, oh, it was when I was in college. And as a freshman in college, I had this strong sense that God was calling me to start a college ministry. But he said, I was just a young Christian. I didn't know anything about ministry. But I just sensed that God was was prompting me to start college ministry. And so I started inviting people to join me. And the first dorm door I knocked on, the guy behind the door, after I told him I was interested in starting a college ministry, said, Oh, I'd be delighted to help. My background is organizational leadership. I'm used to starting new things. And on it went. Now, 40-some years later, my friend still speaks with awe of how God used that ministry to affect the lives of his fellow collegians. God was at work, he said, no doubt. The Bible commentator Jim Edwards writes, Christians, even apostles, are distinguished not by the quantity of faith, but by the employment of faith. Not by greatness or smallness of faith, but by acting on faith. Where might God be calling you to act with whatever amount of faith you have? Remember, it's not if you believe much, God will do much. No, it's even if you believe a little, God can do much. Verses 7 to 10. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Jesus offers a short parable here and is often the case of his parables. There's one basic point. And the basic point here can be summarized with the line, just do your job. Just do your job. In Jesus' time, servants did their job by doing what was needed for their master. That was what their job was. And after plowing the field and tending the sheep all day, they didn't intend to come in and have the master serve them. No, that, that wasn't their role in that household. They would serve the master. Then they would eat dinner. They just did their job without expecting any special treatment. In a similar way, that's how we're to go about our work in Christ's kingdom. We're just doing our job. When we go about our days serving Jesus in the many ways we do that. So, when we speak an encouraging word to someone, 
we're just doing our jobs as followers of Jesus. When we labor to change something that is wrong in our world, we're just doing our jobs as followers of Jesus. When we engage in the hard work of forgiveness, we're just doing our jobs as followers of Jesus. When we love someone who is difficult to love, we're just doing our jobs as followers of Jesus. Again, I quote Jim Edwards, who wrote of this parable, conformity to God's will does not lead to thoughts of extra credit, self-merit, or entitlement, but to humility. I'm reminded of the famous verse from the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. One of my favorite verses in hymnody, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We can never be in God's debt, but we will forever be in his. So we give him our souls, our lives, our all. That's just doing our job. Well, thank you for slowly and reflectively going over these verses in Luke chapter 17 with me. May his word always color our lives with the way of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so full of wisdom so full of insight, so full of challenge. And I pray that there might be a word or a phrase in these 10 verses of chapter 17 that this week we might put into practice, act on in a new way, knowing that whatever the size of our faith, you will be at work through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.